We're going to start with this life truth today. God speaks to us in a way that can be understood. And I'm going to pause there for a moment because I I want us to let that life truth sink in. I want us to think about what is being said there. God speaks to us in a way that can be understood. As a matter of fact, that is the whole motivation of Psalm 19. There's a little notation at the beginning of the psalm. We see these in a lot of the psalms. I left it in this one because it is written for the choir director, a psalm of David. So we know this psalm was a song sung by the congregation, the people of God that gathered in the assembly. And if you look at Psalm 19, what are they singing for? What is the motivation of their praise? Why are they giving this thanksgiving to God? It is because He speaks. It's what Psalm 19 is about. And so as we, as we come here this morning, and as we look at this psalm, I want us to really think about that idea that God speaks to us and He does so in a way that we can understand and we'll finish out the life's truth. The question before us is, are we eager to hear and obey? The question isn't, does God speak? The question is, are we eager to hear from God? And are we eager to obey what God says to us? And I might add there, are we grateful? I want us to to really ponder that for ourselves. Is it a big deal to you that God speaks? Is it a big deal to you that God will speak to you? That if you are eager to hear from Him, that the the Creator of the universe will speak to you, not just in this universal way, but personally, that He knows your name, He knows your life. One of the Psalms that we read recently said, I will counsel you with my eye upon you. So He knows where we are, where we've been, where we're going. Is that a big deal to us? Or is it rather flippant? Is it something that we treat as a good thing, but not something we're really eager for. Now, who are we really eager in our lives to hear from? Who do we really want to talk to? Who do we really want to receive counsel from? As we go through the message this morning, I want you to take that test for your own heart. Listen, I, I readily admit there are times where you know, I'm, I'm sitting and relaxing and, and next to me is a copy of the Scriptures, and in my hand is my phone with this game that I'm trying to get to the next level on, and it's a little bit more intriguing to me than the Scriptures. And I don't say that as a way to make all of us feel guilty for playing games. I think there's a place in that and, and, and a, a time for that. But I do think it's important for us to test our eagerness to hear from the Lord. And whether or not we're really excited about the idea that the God of the universe would speak to us. Because we will really only pursue and do the things ultimately that our heart is stirred to. 
Mere obedience and discipline can get us by for a while. But ultimately, our heart's got to be stirred for us to have motivation to where we really pursue God and the things of God or anything in our lives. In your notes, what we see in Psalm 19, first of all, is that God speaks generally through His creation. That's how the psalm starts. God speaks in a general way through His creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims His handiwork. I used the the CSB this morning, the Christian Standard Bible version. I usually use the ESV, but the ESV, honestly, is a little wooden for me in this psalm, and especially verse 3 is a little confusing. So in the CSB, it says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The expanse proclaims the work of His hands. Day after day, they, talking about the the creation, the heavens, the sky, pour out speech. Night after night, they communicate knowledge. There are no words. Their voice is not heard. But their message has gone out to the whole earth and their words to the end of the world. So what is being said here by the psalmist is that creation speaks. Creation testifies, number one, to the existence of a Creator. We know there's a Creator because we see the creation, but also we understand certain things about the Creator. When we look at the majesty of the sun, when we look at the majesty of the moon, when we look at the vastness of the sea, when we maybe have an opportunity to go somewhere and maybe we're, we're in the mountains or a valley or seeing the Grand Canyon, whatever sights we may be able to take in in our lifetime, it proclaims who God is to us. Yes, there is a Creator, but He is a mighty Creator. He is an amazing Creator. He is a Creator who loves diversity. We live in Alabama. We know that. Right? It's 13 today. It'll be 60 in five days. I'm not kidding. That's really true. God is a diverse God. He loves, and we get to live right in the middle of the diversity of the Lord and His creation. One theologian said of this idea that God speaks generally through His creation is that the communication of the skies is eloquent but mute. Its voice is for the heart and the emotions, not the ear. This type of speaking that God does is not an audible voice through His creation, but is a testimony to our hearts, our emotions. We are, we are stirred looking at the beauty of the creation. Our worship should not end at the creation, but rather our eyes should look up to the Creator. I found this little hymn this week and put it in your notes. It's a poem. It was a hymn in the 1700s. Joseph Addison was the author. He wrote this to be sung in the church. Though in solemn silence all move round this terrestrial ball, though no real voice nor sound amid their radiant orbs be found, in reason's ear they all rejoice and utter forth a glorious voice forever singing as they shine, the hand that made us is divine. Creation tells us there's a Creator and He is majestic. And I want to for a moment show you two different reactions 
to that voice. Remember Psalm 8? If you have a Bible, if you want to turn a few pages back to Psalm 8, and by the way, if you don't have a copy of God's Word, as we always say, there are some scripture, uh, Scriptures on the back table, some Bibles back there. That's a gift to us, excuse me, from us to you. So please take that with you as a, as a gift and let that be your copy of His Word. But you remember Psalm 8? I actually think we started this series with Psalm 8. But you remember in verse 3 and 4, the psalmist says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is his conclusion? What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. Remember the psalmist we talked about in that psalm, the, the humble, they see the work of God, they even see his creation and their response is, how majestic is God? How powerful is God? Who am I, God, that you would think of me? In this vast creation that you have made, you know my name and you care for me. It leads the humble to worship. But now contrast that with Romans chapter 1 over in the New Testament and what Paul wrote, really using Psalm 19 as a base. And we know that because later in Romans, he actually quotes Psalm 19. But in Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 23, Paul writes and says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. There's so much in that passage. But what you have are people who say, there's no God. There's no God that you can know. There's no God that's made things and sometimes I think we get intimidated by that. We get intimidated by someone who would look at us and say, there is no God. Prove Him to me. But the Bible simply says, at the end of the day and at the end of time, these people will be without excuse. When they stand before God, and God says, why did you not honor me? And they said, I didn't even know you existed. He will say, that is not true. You suppress the truth because what is plain about me could be seen in the things that I had made. You could see there was a creator. You could see his power. And you notice what happens is, is the people in Romans 1, they're stirred by creation as well. They're stirred by the beauty of creation. But what happens? Rather than worship God, what do they do? They worship creation. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds and animals and creeping things. They end, up, they end up worshiping the creation rather than the Creator. Church, 
It is incumbent upon us to be the people of Psalm 8. Who, although not hearing the voice that God speaks through His creation, in our hearts we know He is there. And it leads us to Him, to worship. And it is incumbent upon us to show His glory. That those who might be the people of Romans 1 would come to believe upon Him and worship Him rather than the created things that cannot save them. So God speaks generally through His creation, but Psalm 19 goes deeper than that. God also speaks specifically through His written Word. God speaks generally through creation, but then God speaks specifically through His written Word. Beginning in verse 7, the psalmist now turns, and remember this is a song, so the people of God are singing this together as they come to an assembly, so they're singing praise to God for the way that He speaks in a general way through His creation, and now they began to sing about His written Word. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous all together. Those words that are used there, each one of them that are used to describe God's Word, instruction, testimony, precepts, commands, ordinances, those Those words are used in the Old Testament in the first five books of the Bible to describe the Old Testament, the Mosaic Covenant, the Law of Moses. So as the people of God are singing about God's written Word, they are singing about the Old Testament Scriptures that He has given up to that point. But what we know is that this applies to all of the Old Testament because when we get to the New Testament, Jesus and the apostles affirm all of the Scriptures in the Old Testament as being part of that written Word of God that, is, that we are to thank Him for. So think about those terms. I'll go back to the CSB for a moment. Instruction. That's His teaching. His instruction is perfect. We praise God. The people of God praise Him because His instructions do not have defects. They're perfect. The world and culture challenge them. The world and culture say they are wrong, they are imperfect. But God's testimony is no. The written Word that God has given us is perfect in every way. His instructions, His testimony. That is a word that means the, a formal written copy of a covenant. And that's what we have. Those that written copy of the old covenant that God gave to Moses, to Abraham, to his people, and ultimately the covenant that Jesus would fulfill. It is trustworthy. You can trust God's Word. There's a lot of things in life that we know we can't trust. There are things in life we put trust in that fell us. The Word of God, His written Word will never fell us. It is trustworthy. His precepts, these, this means guiding principles. The guiding principles that we take out of God's, uh, out of the Bible, those guiding principles are right. 
That means they're morally straight. They're not crooked. Again, the culture would say and does say, the Word of God is evil. The Word of God is wrong. It is crooked. But the Scriptures say, no, the Word of God is right. It is morally straight. His commands are radiant. These are the commandments, the demands that His Word makes upon us. They are radiant, which means they are bright. They shine brightly in a dark world. The Word of God shines brightly in a dark world. And His ordinances, these are His laws and His judgments, they are both reliable and righteous. They are reliable and they are righteous. That means they're faithful and they're true. What God has said to you is promises. You can put your faith in those. And they are true. They are not a falsehood. So the people of God are singing about this. His written word. He hasn't just spoken generally to the world and hoped that the world could stumble around and find Him. I've said this to you before, but it's just worth the reminder that we, we tend to, in a New Testament sense, we tend to talk about the Old Testament and the laws of the Old Testament in, in, a, in a, almost a, in an evil way, or in a way that it was, it, was, it was a burden and cruel, because we know that ultimately we can't be made right with God by obeying those commands. But for the people of God in the Old Testament, His instructions, His testimony, His precepts, His commands, His ordinances, they were grace. Because there were so many gods in the Old Testament. There were so many gods that pagan nations served, and they had no idea what those gods wanted. And when a famine came on the land, and they couldn't grow something, and they didn't have food, and their, their families were suffering and dying, they assumed the God that we serve is angry at us, so we need to do something so He'll be happy. Some of those nations sacrificed their own children trying to make those gods happy. The one true God spoke to His people and gave them His Word and said, here's what I expect. Here's my precepts. Here's my ordinances. That is grace. And that is why the people of God sang in worship, not worshiping His Word, we have to be careful about that. But worshiping God through His Word. Because we see Him clearly through His Word. In your notes, His Word that has been written and compiled and preserved for us, His Word accomplishes His will. His Word that has been written and compiled and preserved for us accomplishes His will. This is an amazing book written over so many centuries by so many different authors, peasants, farmers, kings, centuries upon centuries of people writing down God's Word, and yet when we read it, what does it do? It tells one single story of God's work to redeem His creation. Isaiah chapter 55, if you want to turn there. 
in a, in a passage you're probably familiar with. Isaiah chapter 55, this is right after God says through Isaiah, the heavens are higher than the earth and my ways are higher than your ways. And then verse 10 and 11, he says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and ultimately bread to the eater, so shall my word that goes from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and it shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God's word that He has ensured was written down, compiled, and then preserved even for us. It accomplishes His will. It proceeds from Him, and it works in power. So just go back to Psalm 19 for a minute. The psalmist doesn't just make these declarations about the Word of God and why the Word should be praised or why we should be thankful for the Word and praise God through the Word, but the psalmist also talks about what the Word accomplishes in our life. Look at verse 7. The instruction of the Lord is perfect, renewing one's life. God's Word can renew your life. Refresh your life. I haven't told the story in a while, but some of you will remember it, but back six, seven years ago, when Alice and I were teaching classes for Lifeline Children's Services, we were teaching parenting classes to moms and dads who'd had their kids removed from them, and they were working to try to get their kids back. And we, we hosted some of those classes here. You may remember those. But one of the moments, we, we, we taught those classes, I don't remember, two, three years the moment that stands out to me the most was teaching a class in downtown Birmingham and at the end of the class sharing a simple scripture from Genesis that we are created in the image of God. And I'll be honest with you, a scripture that we all know and we probably read it and I just kind of move on. If you, you, know, if you, if you decide I'm going to read through the Bible in a year, I'm just going to start at the beginning and go all the way through. It's not my suggestion to you, you usually will die off somewhere in Deuteronomy or Leviticus. But anyway, you start off in Genesis and you probably just read quickly through it because you know it. The next week, we showed back up at the class and there was a, a mom that asked me, she said, can I talk to you for a moment? I said, yeah. And she pulled me to the side and she said, I just wanted to, to tell you that uh, things have not been going well. I haven't, I lost my job that I had and it just seems like I'm never going to get my son back and and she said I had a moment this week when I just felt like it was all crashing down and she said uh, I just thought I'm going to end this and she said the moment that I thought that I'm going to end my life I heard that voice I heard that verse that I am made in the image of God and she said I realized that if I'm made in God's image I'm valuable to him she simply told me that God had saved her life through that Scripture. His words renew us. They refresh us. Some of us, we feel right now like we are in a desolate place. 
there is life from God through His Word to renew us and refresh us. The testimony of the Lord is trustworthy, making the inexperienced wise. That in the ESV it's the simple, making the simple wise. God's Word has the ability to make wise people, to make us wise. We may in our minds, we may not think much of ourselves. We, we may think too much of ourselves, but at times we may not think much of ourselves. The Word of God makes us wise. We may think too much of ourselves because we've experienced a lot and learned a lot and studied a lot on earth from the, the world and culture and what we actually need is the wisdom of God to be truly wise. That's what His Word does. The precepts of the Lord are right, making the heart glad. The Word of God can gladden our heart on a weary day on a day we're struggling with anxiety and depression and sadness and discouragement, take out His Word. God gladdens our hearts through His Word. The command of the Lord is radiant, making the eyes light up. It literally means to awaken us. The Word of God awakens us. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. This is talking about the fear of the Lord that comes to us in reading His Scriptures. Remember we talked about a couple of weeks ago in the, one of the Psalms. The fear of the Lord is the pathway into the love of the Lord. The fear of the Lord comes as we read His Word. And the ordinances of the Lord are reliable and altogether righteous. And they are more desirable than gold. God's Word will accomplish that which He has purposed for it to accomplish. It will not return to Him void i lay that before you, church, saying many of us, we may be suffering, we may be struggling because we are not being refreshed, because we are not having our hearts gladdened, because we're not becoming wise, spending time in God's written Word that He has preserved for us. Is the Word hard at times? Yes. Reading the Word is hard, just like we talk about prayer. Prayer is sometimes hard. But God is there with us to lead us. And from those hard things come really good things. Set your face in this new year to experience God through His Word. And then I want to step outside of Psalm 19 for just a moment before we finish up. Every week I've been trying to give you this some point in the message that is reminding us to look to Jesus and I want to do that here rather than the end of the message because we can't talk about how God has spoken to us without looking to Jesus number one Jesus fulfills what we've just read in your notes the creation points to Jesus so this creation that is speaking about the existence of a creator and the majesty of that creator that creation points to Christ. Remember Colossians 1, we studied Colossians a few months ago. Verse 16 says, By Him all things were made. Through Him, Jesus, all things were made. For Him, for Jesus, all things were made. In Him, in Jesus, all things hold together. When you look at the beautiful sunset, or if you're a morning person, I don't understand you, but anyway, a sunrise 
when you see the beauty of the ocean, when you are amazed at creation, what does it do? It points you to Jesus. It is by Him those things were made. And it was for Him those things were made. And right now, all of that creation that is speaking of the majesty of God is being held together by Jesus. But also the written word. In your notes, the written word was fulfilled by Him. So this word that the psalmist is singing about, all of the scriptures fulfilled by Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, Paul writes and says, all of the promises of God, certainly alluding to the promises of the Old Testament, find their yes in Him, their ending in Him, their fulfillment in Him. Jesus Himself said that on the road to Emmaus, the disciples after His resurrection who did not recognize Him in the moment. He took them through the Old Testament and showed them how everything pointed to Himself. All of the Old Testament eventually will bring us back to Jesus because He fulfilled the Word. But not only that, not only does He fulfill what we're seeing in Psalm 19, but when we get to Hebrews chapter 1, we find that God, through Christ, through Him, God speaks supremely. Hebrews chapter 1 says, Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son who He has anointed the heart, the heir of all things. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of His nature. Jesus was what? The Word of God that became flesh. God became man and spoke to us. Face to face, we have in the New Testament a written record of the face-to-face conversations that God had with His people, speaking supremely in a supreme way to them. But not just that. Jesus also said, I'm going to anoint these apostles. I'm going to send My Spirit and I'm going to continue speaking. And much of what they I say to them and through them, I'm going to have them write down and I'm going to preserve that for you. Don't ever fall into the trap that some people do about wanting to make the words in the Gospels that some Bibles put in red what Jesus said and the rest of the New Testament what man said. Jesus said it's all from Him. He spoke in bodily form directly and then He kept speaking through His Spirit. And all of the New Testament is from Christ. God has spoken supremely through His Son And listen, He's still speaking. He's still speaking. Absolutely, I affirm our belief that the canon of Scripture, the Bible, is is closed. It's finished. We're not adding to that. We're not taking away. But God still speaks through His Spirit to His people. What He says will always always, always be in alignment with His Word that has been written and preserved. But He will speak to you. He will speak to you through the Spirit that is in you. Jesus said, abide with me. Abide with me. My, if you abide with me, 
you are in me and my words are in you. What's he talking about? He's talking about his spirit and his word and what he says to us. You abide with me, you can bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. God speaks to us through his son. Listen to him. He's given gifts to the church. We, we test what is said through those gifts according to the Scriptures, but He still speaks in those ways. He has spoken generally through His creation. He has spoken specifically in His written Word that is authoritative for us, and He speaks supremely through His Son, Jesus. So I want you to keep that in mind as we look at these last four things. I'm going to go back to Psalm 19, and we're going to finish looking at what the conclusions are that the psalmist reaches about what the Word, the Word of God does for us. But I want you to keep in mind where you see the Word of God, we are certainly talking about the written Word, but we're also talking about the Word that became flesh, Jesus. Look at verse 10. In your notes, the Word stirs up delight in God. The Word stirs up delight in God. Verse 10, there are, the Word of God is more desirable than gold, than an abundance of pure gold, and sweeter than honey dripping from a honeycomb. Listen, I'll, I'll be the first to tell you, I, I don't. I, I, I don't always see God's Word that way. I, I strive to. I strive to. It, it, it is my goal to continue to grow and grow and grow in my knowledge of the Lord and my delight in His Word that brings me to Christ. And I believe that the Word of God stirs up delight in us for God. It stirs up worship in us. Jesus abiding with us through His Word and through speaking to us stirs up delight in our hearts. Listen, if you... Here's the quandary we get in. We don't read the Word because we're not delighting in it. We're not reading the Word because it's not capturing our attention. But the way for God to stir our heart up to delight and to capture our attention is through His Word. Read His Word expectantly, expecting Him to take His Word and stir us to worship. His promise is not, read my Word and just have a lot of head knowledge and, and, and just be puffed up with what you know and not stirred by it. No, his promise is, hear my voice. I'm speaking. I will speak to you through this Word by the Spirit of Christ and I will stir you to delight. I will stir you to worship. The Word stirs up delight in God. The Word guides and warns the servants of God. It stirs up our delight in God. It also guides and warns those of us who seek to serve Him. Look at verse 11. In addition, your servant is warned 
by your word. And in keeping your word, there is an abundant reward. When we read the word, we are guided. We are guided by God's principles. We're guided by His commands. We're guided by His instructions. Sometimes we're going to read exactly what God wants us to do. Sometimes we're going to read principles of God that we will then understand and apply to our lives so that we know which direction to go in. He guides us through His Word. And He warns us. He warns us with His Word. He guides us and He warns us. And one of the places that He is guiding us to is that He is guiding us to a place of blessing when we're obedient to His Word. So did you see that in verse 11? In addition, your servant is warned by them, and in keeping them there is an abundant reward. He guides us to blessings when we are obedient to His Word, when we do what His Word says. And this is affirmed in James. This is affirmed in the New Testament. James chapter 1 says that the, the one, the person who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, will be blessed in his doing. So we have both in the Old Testament and the New Testament this promise that the Word of God will guide us and one of the places that it guides us is into His blessings, and we will be blessed when we do what His Word says. And James tells us the same thing. Doing the Word is sometimes just that. It's acting it out. You will see a command, you will see an instruction, and you will set your face to do what it says. Sometimes doing the Word is believing the Word. It's holding on to the Word. It's trusting in the Word. I, someone this week was giving me a testimony that they had, they had gone through a, a hard and difficult moment in their week, and everything in them, like they kind of expected to, to crumple under the weight of what was happening. But they were praying, and, and from God's Word, they confessed, God, I trust you. I trust you, which is what the word calls us to. And they, the testimony they were giving me was that I am not being crushed by this circumstance the way that I would have thought. I'm being upheld in it. And I think it goes back to my confession, even though. I was having a hard time feeling trust. I confessed it based on God's Word. And I believe God is guiding and helping me. In that case, the reward, the doing of the Word was believing. And the reward is being uplifted by God and held on by Him. So, His Word stirs up delight in God, guides and warns us, the Word searches and convicts the holy ones of God. The Word searches and convicts the holy ones of God. Again, verse 12 and 13. It's a question that's asked. Who can perceive his unintentional sins? And, and the answer would be nobody. Who can, who can 
Who can understand their hidden faults? <laughs> no one. Why? Because they're hidden, at least from us. And then the prayer becomes, cleanse me from my hidden faults. And then the prayer continues, moreover, keep your servant from willful sins. The ESV says presumptuous sins. Don't let them rule me. Two kinds of sins that we deal with, those that we're not even aware of, they're unintentional, they're hidden from us, and those that we would act out in our pride. We know what God is saying, we do it anyway. We're struggling. We arrogantly are following our own way and not His way. And the, and the prayer here is, God, forgive me of both. Cleanse me from the things I don't even see in my life right now. And God... Don't let presumptuous sin rule over me. Forgive me. And I believe that part of the reason this is presented to us in Psalm 19 where we're talking about God's Word is because when we read the Word, many times our hidden faults will we'll see it. The Word of God will show them to us. And we will realize, oh, I'm not aligned with Him. I didn't even realize this about myself. Or we're reading His Word and we're being reminded again and again. We're being convicted of those sins that we continue to commit even though we know that we shouldn't. The Word of God does both. It leads us, searches our hearts and reveals to us our sin. It convicts us of sin and then it leads us to forgiveness. How can those prayers be answered in verse 12 and 13. Cleanse me from my hidden faults. Don't let sin rule over me. The way that that is answered is in Jesus, the person of Jesus that the Word leads us to. And then finally, the Word transforms our prayers before God. The Word transforms our prayers before God. Verse 14, that's beautiful uh, verse Years ago when I was going to church with uh, Allison and her family, the, the, the reverend there would start every sermon with this verse. He would say this verse as a prayer over his sermon. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. could preach a whole sermon on this. I'm not. But I'll just remind you, the Word of God changes our hearts. What we say is coming from our heart. Okay? We don't just speak in a vacuum. What we say is rooted in what we believe and what we think and how we feel. It's rooted in our heart. And not only what we say, but the very actions that we do. They're rooted in our heart. The heart is the wellspring of life. We've talked about this many times, but it's one of the fallacies of looking at the world and saying, Change! And then come love Jesus. That's totally backwards. They can't do that. Love Christ. And then what works within us is obedience to Him. But I, I want to use this to get us to think about praying because one of our values here, one of our goals, the vision of this church is to be a house of prayer. We talk about this often. One of the most powerful ways we can pray is praying being informed by God's Word. That's why we're doing this whole series in the Psalms. One of the goals is I want us to come out of it, and I pray that we use the Psalms as a guide in our own prayers. But the Word of God will transform how you pray to God. 
He, per, he watches over His Word to perform it. He sends His Word out and it will not return to Him empty. How in our abiding with Jesus should we pray for our lives, for our family, for our church? Let our prayers be saturated with God's Word. When we read in the psalm that God will counsel us He'll counsel me with His eyes upon me. Pray that. God, I, I pray for Don. I don't think we have a Don here, so I'm just using a generic name. I pray for Don. Counsel him with your eyes on him. Show him the way to go. When the, when the Word says, Create in me a clean heart, O Lord, pray that for your children. Children, pray that for your parents. <laughs> Create in them a clean heart. When we're praying for our friends that are dealing with depression and anxiety, and the Word of God says that, that He'll renew us with His Spirit, pray that. Let the Word be in your heart, and as you pray for one another, let the Word come out. You don't know what to pray, you don't know what to say, Beautiful. Read His Word and pray it for your church and for your family. And I want you to remember, yes, the Word of God does this, and yes, the Word of God became a man and dwelt among us. Jesus stirs up delight in God. Jesus warns us and He guides us to blessing. Jesus searches our hearts and He convicts us of sin. Jesus transforms how we pray when we abide with Him in His Word and prayer.